All right, good to see everybody. Thank y'all for coming. We're in a sermon series called God in a Box, and we were right smack dab in the middle. Uh, we have um, done two sermons in this series. We talked about the limitless power of God. In the book of Genesis, God asked Abraham, is anything too hard for God? And of course, that question was answered immediately. But we find a very clear answer in Jeremiah when Jeremiah answered and said, there's nothing too hard for God. So in the first two messages, we talked about how that God can and will keep every promise. We talked about how there's no prayer God can't answer, no problem God can't solve, no person God can't save. And what we're going to talk about beginning today and next Sunday is man's limiting power. God is limitless in his power, but man has a limiting power over God. Now, it's unthinkable, but it's true that puny little man can limit God. It's unthinkable, but true that sinful man can bind up the work of the sovereign God. And you might be sitting out there today going, Pastor, I got to tell you, that sounds like blasphemy to me. It would sound like that to me as well, except one thing, I've studied the scriptures and it's clear that God has allowed us to limit him in some ways that we think and some ways that we behave. And we're going to talk about five of those, two today and three next Sunday, ways that we limit God. Psalm 78 and verse 41 speaks of God's people when they were in the wilderness. You know, um, that event in the book of Exodus where the children of Israel come out of Egyptian bondage. They made a movie about that. I don't know if y'all knew. And um, some of y'all got that. <laughs> anyway, maybe you hadn't read it in the Bible, but you've seen the movie. Charlton Heston, you know, he's Moses and coming out of Egypt. And um, Psalm 78 verse 41, 41 is talking about that. It's talking about how when they came out of Egypt, which is a picture of us being in sin before we knew Christ, came out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness, God is trying, think about this, God is trying in the book of Exodus to bless the children of God. He's trying to be good to them. He's trying to be bountiful to them. He is trying to lead them through the wilderness to the promised land. Because the wilderness was a desert place. It was a, a place of no vegetation, no pasture. God had to send food from the sky to feed them. And water had to come out of a rock for them to have water to drink. So God, listen to this. God did not intend for them to stay in the wilderness. How long were they in the wilderness? 40 years. Do you know that had they just left Egypt and went straight into the promised land, the land of Canaan, it would have taken 11 days. It was about an 11-day trip. So there's a legitimate wilderness experience for us. When we first become Christians, when we first become followers of Christ, there is a legitimate wilderness experience we go through when we're new in the Lord. Paul called it uh, being a babe in Christ. And we've all read that scripture over in uh, his letters to the Corinthians. So there's a legitimate wilderness experience, but then God wants us to go through the wilderness into the promised land, the land of milk and honey, the land of 
corn and wine and grapes and pomegranates, lush vegetation. In other words, yes, there is a time of wilderness, but God doesn't want us to stay there. God wants to bless us, and he tried to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, but they kept on re- resisting him and not obeying him, not doing what he was telling them to do. So in Psalm 78 and verse 41, it refers to that. I want you to look at this verse. It's very, very clear. If we can go to the next slide, thank you. Yes, again and again, they tempted God, and everybody read the yellow, and they limited God. They would not let God do what he wanted to do in their life. They would not let God lavishly, lovingly, generously pour out his best blessings on them. They limited the Holy One of Israel. Really, it's an amazing thing. The word limit means to set boundaries. It means to hinder or to bind up. Now I want to go from this Old Testament scripture, I want to go over to the New Testament, and I want to go to the book of Matthew chapter 27, and this is the story of how they came to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus Christ. They came to the Garden of Gethsemane to... um, Uh, bind him, to arrest him, to take him into custody. So watch this. In the first light of dawn, all the high priests and religious leaders met and put the finishing touches on their plot to kill Jesus. Look at this last sentence. Everybody read the yellow. Then they tied him up. And because they tied him up, they were able to control him. They tied him up and paraded him to Pilate the governor. I tell you, when you read that, it just, it just blows your mind. I don't know what they used. I don't know if whether it was a rope or chains or leather strips, but they took the precious holy hands of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and they tied them up. They bound him. Think about this. He's the one, those hands they bound, those hands they tied in the Garden of Gethsemane were the hands that created everything. Jesus was at creation, and we'll show you this in just a minute. Universes dripped from his fingertips. Planets came from the spoken word of his mouth. Jesus spoke it, and it was so. He spoke it, and it stood fast. I love Dr. S.M. Lockridge, he talks about um, that scripture where it says, God is from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And he does a word study there and he says, God reached where there was nowhere to reach and took something when there, was took, when there was nothing to take and hung it in the universe and told it to stay there. Y'all to just, y'all to just go to uh, YouTube. Don't do it now. I know some of y'all want to do it now. Some of y'all probably already on YouTube right now. But anyway, what you want to do is go there and just put in Dr. S.M. Lockridge and just watch, listen to that message as he talks about God at creation and how God made all things and how Jesus was there. The Bible tells us in the New Testament book of Colossians, and Colossians is a church 
And it is a letter that Paul, the apostle, wrote to this church at Colossians. And he's telling them about how Jesus was at creation. And in Colossians 1 and 16, and this isn't going to come up on the screen, so just listen. It says, all things were made by him, Jesus, and for him, that was made by him and for him. And without Jesus, without him, was not anything made that was made. So those hands tied in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before they hung him on the cross, were hands that had created everything. And then it goes on in Matthew 28 and 18, and Jesus said from his own mouth, I have all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth, he says, has been given to me. He's the one who scooped out the seas. He's the one who heaped up the mountains. He's the one who flung the sun and the moon and the stars in their place. He's the one who regulates and controls the universe. Now, we read Colossians 1.16. Listen to Colossians 1.17. It says, he, Jesus, existed before anything else. Jesus existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Yet they tied his hands. He has all authority. He is all all powerful, sovereign creator, but they tied his hands. They bound his hands. You know why? He allowed them to. He allowed them to bind his hands. Don't you dare think this morning that he could not have at any moment he wanted to stop those who came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He could have stopped them dead in their tracks. Jesus also said in John 10 and 18, he said, no one can take my life from me. He said, I sacrifice it voluntarily. I willingly give myself. See, they couldn't take him. He wasn't taken against his will. Jesus allowed himself to be limited. Now, I love Matthew 26. If you go back, we were just in 27. If you go back to Matthew 26, you're going to find out that when they came to the Garden of Gethsemane to take Jesus, Simon Peter, y'all know Simon Peter. You remember Simon Peter? And you remember we used to do an Easter drama called The Cross and the Crown? And there was a guy in that play that played Simon Peter. Y'all remember? He was so awesome. Do y'all remember him? Oh, man. I am so glad Hollywood didn't discover him. We'd lost him. He wouldn't be at our church anymore. He's so good. Who played that part? Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, so so I forgot for a minute. So I needed y'all to remind me. Um, so in Matthew 26, they come to arrest Jesus, and uh, Simon Peter pulls out his sword, and he cuts a soldier's ear off in an attempt to a, protect Jesus. Y'all remember that? But he didn't mean to. He meant to cut his head off. That's what he meant to do. (laughs) Simon Peter, his last name, and a lot of people don't know this. It's not in the Bible. A lot of people don't know it. You need to write this down. His last name was Hardison. (laughs) Because he often said what he shouldn't have said before he thought, and he often did what he shouldn't have done before he thought. Matter of fact, one preacher said that Simon Peter had his foot in his mouth more than he had it on the ground. He was always saying the wrong thing. So that's why I say Peter Hardison, because I know this Hardison guy who has the same problem. So so Simon Peter, um, and let me tell you what the whole problem was. Preachers don't know how to fight. 
And if you give them a knife, they really don't know how to use a knife when they're fighting, you know, unless they came from a really, really rough background. And of course, you all know, I came out of a really rough background. I, I came to Jesus when I was seven years old, strung out on Skittles, and Jesus came and <laughs> saved me. My teeth were not good, and so I just thank God for it. All right. So if y'all brought guests with you today, just look at them right now and go, he, he's all right. He's okay. He'll be all right. But here's what Jesus said. <laughs> Jesus essentially said, Simon, look, look, man, put your sword back. You don't have to defend me because if I wanted to, I could have called 12 legions of angels. Now, we used to sing a song back in the old days. How many of y'all can hear that song in your head right now? Y'all want me to sing a little bit of that song? We could have called how many? 10,000 angels. And we used to sing that back in the old days, you know. And um, uh, that's a good song, but I don't know where the scriptural background is for it because what Jesus said was, I could have called 12 legions of angels. Well, I did a little bit of study, and I found out that a legion, when it came to soldiers and that kind of thing, was at least 6,000. Now, it was often more than 6,000, but it was at least 6,000. So we'll go with that lowest figure. So here's what Jesus actually said. I could have called 72,000 angels. So let's sing that song. I could have called 72,000 angels. This don't flow. It don't flow. That's why they picked 10,000. But Jesus could have called how many? 72,000 angels. <laughs> Did he need Simon Peter to defend him? No, sir. But Simon Peter was like, man, I'm... He was like karate kid. He was ready to go. And um, Jesus said, I don't need you, Simon Peter. I got angels I can call. And boy, they'd have got the job done. And then it reminded me that in 2 Kings chapter 19, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. So one angel could have probably handled what was going on right there in Gethsemane, I'm pretty sure. So they arrested Jesus in the garden. They tied his hands. They bound him. You got to get this because he let them. Because he allowed them to do it. As he does with us today. We have to remember the proclamation of Jeremiah. We have to remember the declaration of Jeremiah. Nothing is too hard for God. God can do anything he wants to, anytime he wants to. He will keep every promise he's ever made. He can and he will. He can solve any problem you have. He has the ability to answer any prayer you ask. And he has the ability to save anybody who calls on his name. There's nothing God can't do. But he allows himself to be limited. Here's what you have to understand now as it relates to you and application to your life. The hands they tied in the garden, the hands they tied were hands that wanted to heal them. The, hand, the hands they tied didn't want to hurt them, didn't want to harm them. It says about Jesus, he went about doing good. The hands they tied wanted to bless them. The hands they tied wanted to be generous to them. The hands they tied wanted to be loving to them. The hands that they bound wanted to comfort them, but they 
bound them. They tied them. So then we bring it back home and we ask the question, why doesn't God move in my life more often and in more miraculous ways? Why doesn't God move and work in my church in greater and more often and more miraculous ways? And here's why. Because we, like the people who arrested Jesus, have bound his healing hands. We have bound his hands of blessing, his hands of generosity, his hands of love, his hands of comfort. We've bound them. God wants to do more than he's doing. God wants to accomplish more in you and more in this church than he's currently accomplishing. He wants to do more. So in these last two messages of this series, I want to help you and I want to help me because I'm as guilty as anybody in this room. I, as I prepared this message, I saw so many ways I limit God. So I want to help us remove the chains from the hands of Jesus and free him to work in our, day, in our lives. And remember, there's nothing he can't do. So let's read in God's word. It's some things we can do to untie the hands of Jesus so he can work in our home and our family, and our finances, and our business, and our physical body, and our emotions, and our relationships, and in our daily lives. So let's look at something that binds the hands of Jesus. Number one, an unwilling heart. An unwilling heart will bind the hands of Jesus. It will tie his hands. Matthew 23 and verse 37 is a very, very touching scene because in this scripture, Jesus is standing over the city of Jerusalem. And this is primarily in reference to the Jewish nation, but it applies to us too. And he's, I can just see him standing on a hillside over the city of Jerusalem with his hands outstretched over the city. And hot tears are flowing down his face and dripping from his beard. As he says in Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often, look, look at the heart of Jesus. This is his heart toward you. This is his heart toward me. Look at these yellow words. How often I have longed to bless you. I have yearned, I have desired, I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. And in the South, what do we call chicks? Biddies. Come on now. How many Southern people I got in here? Matter of fact, biddy is the Greek word for chick. No, it's not. That's not true. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and everybody read the yellow. You were not willing. I wanted to. I longed to. But you would not. You were not willing to let me do it. I would have blessed you. But you were not willing. I wanted to bless you. But you were not willing. I could have blessed you. But you we're not willing. I want you to look at the compassionate example Jesus uses as he uses the picture of a hen taking care of her little biddies, her little chicks. 
And, and I, don't know, I don't know how many of y'all grew up on the farm or how many of y'all ever saw this, but I had a lesson in this one day as a little boy because my grandma and grandpa had chickens in the yard and biddies. Had to be careful where you stepped. You know what I'm saying? And I remember they would hatch those little biddies. And I got the brave idea of, I thought I'd just pick me up one of those little biddies. And man, that's the first time I ever saw that karate kid move. It was from a hen. She threw those wings out, buddy. And I saw a side of that hen I had never seen before. And she attacked. She protected. She she threw her wings out and pulled those little chicks up under her wings because she thought I was going to harm them. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I could have gathered you like that. I could have gathered you. I could have fed you like a, like a mother hen feeds her chicks. I could have protected you like a mother hen protects those little bitties. I, I could have cared for you. I wanted to. I, I could have warmed you and I could have done all the things you needed, but you were not willing to let me do it. The Jewish people limited the Lord by their unwillingness, and you and I are capable of doing the same thing today. So we've got to, we've got to examine ourselves. What would God do in my life in 2015 if I let him? If I just let him do what he wanted to do? If instead of me resisting, I just said, God, I'm here. I know you want what's best for me. I'm not going to resist you anymore. Where you go, I will follow. Where you lead, I'll follow. What you tell me to do, I'll do it. God, I'm going to stop resisting you, and I am going to have a willing heart in 2015. And you know what? If you're here today and you're, you're like, well, I, don't even, I, I kind of don't know what that is. I don't know what that is or how to develop that. Or maybe sometimes you don't even know when you are being resist, resisting to the Lord, when you're being um, uh, holding God at, at bay, when you're kind of pushing God off. you don't. Well, then if you don't recognize it, you don't see it, but you know God's wanting to work in your life more, then this is what you pray. Show me, God. Show me when I'm unwilling. Show me how I'm being resistant toward you. Because sometimes we can be doing that and there's not a conscious awareness that that's what we're doing. So pray for God to help you see when you're holding him off. Because most of the time, you know, when we hold God off is when we're a little bit scared of making a commitment level that he's calling us to. And we hold back from making that commitment level. And what that is, that's an unwilling heart. That's a resistant heart. And when you have a resistant heart, God can't do in you what he wants to do in you. Let me just give you a few little things that you got to do. Um, and then we'll move on to the last point. First of all, you got to believe that he wants to bless you. And a lot of you struggle with that. And we talk about that all the time here at the bridge. And you might feel like I'm repetitive on that. But I run into people all the time, and I want to say what I've said before in this sermon series. They think God is ready to bless everybody except them. 
Every time you begin to pray for something and ask for something, the enemy reminds you of something you did in your past. Now, if the Holy Spirit's reminding you of something you did in your past and you haven't repented and you haven't turned your back on it and you haven't cleansed your, allowed God to cleanse you of it, then, then that's a whole nother thing. But if you've brought that thing to Christ and you've committed that thing to Christ and you've repented of that thing, hey, listen to me, that's gone. And don't let the enemy keep bringing that up to condemn you for something you've done in your past that's under the blood of Jesus Christ, that you have repented of, that you have opened up about, that you've allowed God to deal with. So there are two different kind of things going on there. You've got, you've got stuff in your past you've dealt with, and the enemy keeps reminding you of it, and that keeps you from uh, trusting God's blessing in your life. But then sometimes there really is something there. There really is something there in our life, and we haven't let God deal with that thing. We've let him deal with most of the stuff, but we've got a few little habits we like to hold on to, and a few little things we like to hold on to, and a few little unforgiveness we like to hold on to, and some grudges, and, and gossip, and blah, 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 you know, all the stuff that we like to hold on to, and we know God's been dealing with us about we got to get that out of our life, and we kind of resist that and go, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I know I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not as bad as that guy, and we use all kind of justification, and what happens when you do that? is you're resisting what God's wanting to do in your life. Is this making sense? So when we stop resisting and let him in to deal with everything in our life, and we'll talk about this in a minute as we close this message a little deeper, but you've got to believe for yourself. You've got to believe God wants to bless me. Everybody say this with me out loud. I believe that God Almighty... The God of the Bible has good things for me, wants to bless me, wants me to enjoy some blessings from him I've never enjoyed before. Dear Lord, show me where I'm being resistant, where I'm being unwilling, where I'm pushing back. I want you to bless me in this year as you never have before. In the name of Jesus, man. Amen, amen. The children of Israel were in the wilderness and God said, you don't have to be. You don't have to be in the wilderness. I wanted to bless you. That scripture in Psalms we opened up. I longed to bless you. I wanted to bless you. But you limited the Holy One of Israel. So we got to believe God wants to pour out on us love and grace and peace and joy and fulfillment and purpose and forgiveness. God wants to give us all this today, but he will not force it on us. You have to have a willing heart. Believe that our Lord with his hands bound by our unwillingness, that he weeps over that. He wept over Jerusalem because Jerusalem would not let him do. I long to bless you, Jerusalem, but you were not willing. He weeps. I'm telling you, he weeps over us today because of all he wants to do in our life, but we are not willing we tie his hands, we bind him, we put him in a box. The final thing that I want to talk about today, and then 
we'll pick up next week is another heart that will keep you from gaining access to the blessings of God is a heart that is unconcerned, an unconcerned heart. So what does that mean? For this one, we're going to go to Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 3. And I'm going to read, I'm going to read the Bible, because this is just how I roll. First time I've done this, but I'm going to read it backwards to you. Y'all excited? Now, I don't mean I'm going to go to the end of a verse and read the verse, but I'm just going to start with a verse at the bottom, and then we're going to look at the verses before it in just a minute. But let's look at Revelation 3.20. How many of y'all know enough about the book of Revelation that you know there were some churches in the beginning of the book that he dealt with and told them what they needed to do? Well, one of those churches was Laodicea. Laodicea. And it was a church. It was a local church. So look what he says to them in Revelation 3.20. He says, I want you to know, I love, look, in, in a modern translation, a more modern translation, that would be, yo. <laughs> look, I stand, I, think about this for yourself. Think about this for the bridge. I stand at the door of your church and I knock. I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. I stand at the door of your marriage and I knock. I stand at the door of your finances and I knock. I stand at the door of your home and I knock. I stand at the door of your addiction and I knock. I stand at the door for whatever you need and I knock on that door asking you, let me in. I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will and will share a meal together as friends. Now, here Jesus uses, in order to illustrate what he wants with us, he uses the most intimate daily fellowship we enjoy as a family, and that's the evening meal. If I regret anything as a parent, <coughs> excuse me. If I regret anything as a parent, one of the things I regret is that I did not demand, and I know it's not always possible, but I did not demand that if there is any way possible, we're going to all eat dinner together tonight. And we're going to turn everything off phones. Somebody say amen. I know it's hard. TVs, music, and we're going to sit down together as a family and eat. And we're going to talk about our day. And we're going to pray together. So Jesus uses this intimate time, dinner together, as an example of his desire to be with us and fellowship with us. Here's my question to you. Is Jesus real to you? Is Jesus real in your life? I mean, do you... Do you and him, I mean, do y'all hang out? Do you, do you talk to Jesus? Do you, do you um, just sometimes enjoy his presence without asking for anything? And sometimes when you're going down the road, you just turn off all the music and maybe you put on a worship CD real low and you're just riding down the road and you and Jesus are just, I mean, is he real? Is he real? I mean, or, or is he just some strict distant, hard to please, 
authoritarian in your life, policing every move you make, just hoping to find you doing something wrong so he can whop you over the head? Do you, is he real? Is Jesus real in your life? He wants to be. He wants that relationship with you. So we look at Revelation 3.20 and we find here the kind of relationship he wants with us. As a matter of fact, when you go back in the scripture, you'll find that some of the most intimate times in the Bible Jesus had with his disciples were when they broke bread together. And here he's talking to this church at Laodicea. Now, the whole scripture that deals with the Laodicean church in the book of Revelation, and I would encourage you to study that, not this morning, but in your private time, Revelation 3, 14 through 22, he's talking to this local church, and their biggest problem is the reason he can't work in that church and do what he wants to do in that church is because of their unconcern, their apathy, their apathetic. They don't care. They, um, they're lukewarm. So let's back up. So we read Revelation 3.20. Let's back up to verse 17, Revelation 3.17. He says, here's your problem. Here's your pro-. He tells this local church, here's your problem. He says, you say, and if you don't say it, you think it. You say, I'm rich. You say, I have become wealthy, so therefore I what? Have need of? He said, but what you don't know, this is what you think, but what you don't know is that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. In other words, you think you don't need me, but you're actually desperate for me. You think you don't need me, but actually you are desperate for me. And he calls them out. And then he backs up. Let's back up again. We're going backwards here. Revelation 3, 15 and 16. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish, I could wish you were cold or hot. In other words, I wish you were one or the other. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Here was a church so lukewarm, so unconcerned, so apathetic, it nauseated God. Now, i got to tell you something. If a local church can do that to God, I'm telling you, an individual believer can do that to God. An individual, solitary Christian can do that to God. Lukewarm, unconcerned, apathetic. Here's what God said to that church, man. He said, you turn my stomach. He said, when I think about all I did for you, and now this is how you are toward me, he said, it makes me sick. You know, when our children don't behave... When we get a call from school or we get a call from a law enforcement officer that our child is in trouble, I don't know how you feel or how I felt back in the day, but it would make me sick because I would know that if my child had followed me and done what I said and done what I taught, they wouldn't be going through what they're going through. 
it turned his stomach. It nauseated him. But I want you guys to back up two slides. Back up two slides. I'm sorry I didn't uh, do this. One more. Good. Now, you've got to know that the verses I just read are actually before this verse. So he is raking them over the coals, man. He is going, you are not warm. You are, you are not cold. You are lukewarm. You, you nauseate me. Your works are, uh, you think you've got everything you need. You say you're rich. You say you're wealthy. You say you don't need anything. After he has laid them out and told them this is the whole problem, I want you to know, after he said that, compassion. Man, do you see the love of Jesus here? Because see, do you ever go, man, I tell you, if I was God, I'd, we're so glad you're not God. Because if you were God, you'd have nuked me a long time ago. You'd have went, I had it with Pharaoh Harness and God lays this church out and says, man, I'm telling you, I want to get in your door. I want to bless you, but you won't let me. You think you don't need me. You think you got everything you need. He said, I stand, even though you are like that toward me, even though you disrespect me, even though you don't honor me, even though you're unconcerned, even though you're apathetic, even though you're lukewarm, still I stand at the door and knock. And if you will let me in, I will make myself real to you. That's what God wants. That's what God wants for you. It's what God wants for me. He wants this relationship with us. Well, why didn't God just walk right in? I mean, why didn't God go and just walk right in? I mean, he wept over this church. He suffered for this church. He shed his blood for this church. He died for this church. He overcame death for this church. He was resurrected for this church. Why didn't he just force the door open? And I'm going to tell you why. Because nobody wants to be loved because you force them to love you. I mean, I don't want to come home when my boys were little and I was a traveling evangelist back in the day. and I didn't want to come home after weeks being gone, speaking in revival meetings, come back, and Millie go, now your dad's coming home, and you know, we hadn't seen him in a long time. So when he comes in that door, you boys run up there and just really love on daddy and tell daddy you love him, tell him you miss. I don't want to tell my boys that. I want to walk in that door and I want them to just come running up to me because they love me. I'm a daddy. We serve a God who is a father. He's not going to make you love him. He doesn't want that kind of love. He wants you to choose to love him. I remember when I'd come home from those meetings after being gone for a long time, my boys would run up to me, look me in the eyes, look deep into my eyes, and they'd say, did you bring me anything? <laughs> and then they'd go, we missed you, man. Since you brought us something, we really missed you. <laughs> you know, Holloman Hunt painted that picture, that famous picture of Jesus knocking on the door. In the painting, we see the vines growing over the door and the big hinges, and Christ is there with a lantern in his hand. Luke 15, shining the light and looking. He's knocking. And somebody looked at that painting and said, there's no handle on the outside. Y'all have heard this. There's no handle on the outside. And somebody immediately observed the handle's on the inside. That's your decision. It isn't. God's taking that decision out of his hands that he's just going to open the door and come in our life. You have to open the door. That's why a lot of people think they're going to heaven when they're not going to heaven. 
Because they go, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose from the dead. And you know, the Bible says all you got to do is believe and you get to go to heaven. No. Hmm. I believe in Abraham Lincoln. I believe, there's a lot of stuff I believe, but it don't change my life. The only way I'm going to get my life changed is if I let Jesus into my life and I let him walk into the door of my heart. It's not enough just having faith. Thank all 48 of you. It's not. So you want God in your life? So I'm telling you right now, can I just say something really strong here? Stop you griping about what God hadn't done in your life when you are not opening the door and letting him have control of your life every single day. You know when you want God to have control in your life? When you got problems. When you got problems, when you got a terrible report from the doctor, when you got fired from your job, when your wife says, I'm tired, I'm leaving, or you say to your wife, I'm tired, I'm leaving, I'm done with this marriage. Then, you, then you're like, I want God in my life. And then I even have people come, and they're mad at God. And I looked at their life before this trouble came along, and they never opened the door to God really come in their life. Open the door. You want him in your life? Open the door. You want him in your life when the trouble comes? Open the door now. And let him in your life. You can limit the Holy One of Israel with an unwilling heart, resistant. I wanted to bless you, but you weren't willing. Or an unconcerned heart that goes, I'm rich, wealthy, have need of nothing. That's an unconcerned, apathetic heart. And that will tie the hands of God. That will put God in a box in your life. And you don't get to put him in that box and let him out whenever you want to. You want God working in your life? You want freedom? You want to see prayers answered? You want miracles in your life? You want to see stuff happen in your life in 2015 you've never seen happen before? Then you open the door and let him in right now, no matter what situation you're in, and let him rule your life day by day. And then when you fall into crisis, he will be there. Why? Because he already was there. Let's all stand together. If you would, everybody.